You are listening to Civic Conversations, a podcast collaboration between the League of Women Voters, Bloomington, Murrow County, and WFHB. I am Becky Hill. Jim Allison, our host, is out ill. We are pleased to say that you can find Civic Conversations each month on WFHB 93.1 and 98.1 FM. You can also find the podcast at the League website www.lwv-bmc.org. Today's guest is Dr. Anita Morgan, Senior Lecturer Emerita at Indiana University School of Liberal Arts at IUPUI. She is here to talk about her new book, We Must Be Fearless, The Women's Suffrage Movement in Indiana. Welcome, Dr. Morgan. Thank you for having me. First of all, tell me what motivated you to write We Are Fearless. Well, really two things. One, uh, there was a lot of information about the suffrage movement and some of the women in it scattered around in various places where most people didn't know to look for it. So master's thesis, some scholarly articles, um, but it also didn't cover everything in those articles. And I thought it was time to take all of that, put it in one place. Uh, and of course, with the suffrage centennial coming up, it seemed like an appropriate time uh, to do it. Uh, but another thing that inspired me, other than this, let's get organized uh, idea, was that there was a women's march in Indiana a few years back. And um, commentators were saying, oh, they'd never seen women turn out like this before. And women had not taken the public stage like this before. And I'm sitting in my house saying, Yes, they, they've done this before. This has happened in Indiana. Uh, and so I thought the story should be told. Well, I wondered if you could just give me a thumbnail sketch of the history of women's suffrage in the U.S. Okay. Um, it, it closely parallels what happened in Indiana. Uh, the national movement started, of course, in 1848 in Seneca Falls, New York, with the famous meeting there. Uh, called by Elizabeth Cady Stanton and some of her uh, friends. They wrote the Declaration of Sentiments uh, based on the Declaration of Independence, which includes the famous line, all men and women are created equal. Uh, they, they had this meeting for several reasons. Uh, one was they thought women should have better educational opportunities than were available at the time that women should have access to better employment, better paid employment, especially. Uh, and a big one for both Indiana and for this, this uh, meeting in Seneca Falls was a conversation about married women's property laws and could married women own property in their own name. And this was up for debate in many states in the union at that time. And the women at Seneca Falls said, well, yes, married women should be able to control their own property. Uh, and so it was kind of a confluence of several things that made that meeting happen. Um, a lot of things were achieved prior to the Civil War, including many married women's property laws. But then the suffrage movement shut down for the duration of the Civil War, and the women devoted their effort to the war. Uh, they thought that this would automatically make men think, wow, women should have the vote because they helped with the war. But of course, we know uh, that didn't happen. Mm -hmm. uh, after the war, the National American Woman Suffrage Association was formed. Um, 
and the first state to actually write giving women the vote in their constitution came in 1890 with Wyoming. Uh, after that, several states in the West followed, then there was a lull, and then it picked up again. And by the time we get to 1920, when we have the 19th Amendment ratified, uh, 28 states already gave women some form of the vote, if not the entire vote, then partial suffrage, being able to vote for school boards or the local mayor or something like that. And in fact, Indiana was surrounded by states who already gave women some sort of vote in mm -hmm. 1920. We were kind of sticking out as the only state where women couldn't vote. So, so if Indiana was kind of sticking out, I mean, what, what ended up, what, what was their role overall in, in this whole movement? Amazingly enough, even though Indiana women tried since 1851 to get the vote in this state, um, even though they couldn't get it here, they were really important nationally. Uh, they went, Indiana women, uh, for example, Dr. Mary Thomas of Richmond was president of the American Woman Suffrage Association, which was a national organization. May Wright Sewell of Indianapolis was important at the national suffrage level and also international suffrage. She led an international women's suffrage organization. Um, um, Mary Garrett Hay uh, of Charlestown, Indiana, was the first chair of the National Republicans Women's Committee. Ida Husted Harper ran the press bureau for the National Suffrage Association. Uh, so they were incredibly important, incredibly well-known, active at the national level, but at the state level just couldn't quite get suffrage uh, pushed through, uh, which was very discouraging. But the votes in Indiana, I will say, were always very close. So when exactly did women in Indiana get the vote? What year? Well, depends what you mean. <laughs> Um, they almost got the vote in 1881-83. It was it was very close. They were actually, the state legislature actually gave Indiana women the vote in 1881 by amending the state constitution. However, that had to pass the legislature again in 1883 for it to become active, and it was defeated in 1883. Now, if that had not happened, Indiana would have been the first state to give women the vote, we would have, uh, because Wyoming doesn't come along until 1890. Uh, so that was unfortunate. Now, there were a few women in Indiana who did vote in 1917. There was uh, a partial suffrage bill that was enacted early in 1917. Uh, and there were some uh, elections that took place that summer that women actually managed to quickly get registered for and actually vote. Uh, Warren County was the first place we think in Indiana where a woman actually voted, but that law was being challenged through the courts. And so when we get to November of 1917, uh, the Indiana Supreme Court rules that women can't vote. And so those very few women were the only ones who voted until the passage of the National Amendment. Okay. You know, I was really intrigued. You looked at and used a number of really important collections of papers on this subject at, at the Lilly Library, one being the, the 
Luella McWhorter collection. I was kind of curious about that. Tell me about that collection and then any, what other research did you do for this? It's a wonderful collection. Uh, Luella McWhorter was very important uh, to the Women's Legislative Council. She was uh, active in the state Women's Christian Temperance Union. She was well-known and well-liked by all suffragists. And so her collection is a wealth of personal papers, letters between herself and other suffragists like Grace Julian Clark, who was a huge name in the suffrage movement. Um, her childhood friend, uh, Sarah Messing Stern, uh, has several letters in there. Stern was also very active uh, in the suffrage movement. Uh, and they had grown up together in Indianapolis. Uh, Luella McWhorter's father was a Methodist minister. Sarah Messing Stern's father was the local rabbi in Indianapolis. And they had um, something in common, I believe, because of their father both being religious leaders in town. And their letters between each other are just wonderful and chatty. And you realize that a lot of the suffrage movement was formed on really close and warm friendships between the women who were involved in this. Um, McWhorter also loved to clip things out of newspapers. And um, there's wonderful clipping files in there of, of suffrage. Uh, and that's very important that we have those. It also tells you a lot about McWhorter. Why did she save what she saved? Mm -hmm. What I think would be wonderful is if the Lily could do what the Indiana State Library did and um, digitize this important collection. Uh, the State Library wrote a grant and had Grace Julian Clark's collection digitized. And it's a wonderful, I can sit at home and read. And so can anybody else in the country who's really interested in Indiana. And uh, McWhorter's collection deserves that just as much as the Clark collection. Uh, and then, of course, there's always the meeting minutes and things that are at the Indiana Historical Society. But those two particular collections, I think, really show you not only the connections between the women, but also their frustrations come to the surface in letters uh, and their deep knowledge of political maneuvering. Even though they can't vote, they know who to talk to in what to do. Uh, so it's a wonderful collection. You know, the, the League of Women Voters started in 1920, and that was the same year that Indiana ratified the, the 19th Amendment. What role do you think, if there was any role at all, that the suffrage movement played in the founding of the League of Women Voters? Well, at the national level, the National American Woman Suffrage Association actually turned their membership roles over to the League of Women Voters. And they encouraged their members to join the League of Women Voters. Uh, uh, in Indiana, that was motivated a lot by Marie Stewart Edwards, uh, who becomes the first treasurer at the national level of the League of Women Voters. So we actually have a Hoosier that's an officer uh, in the national level. Uh, because a lot of suffragists, both nationally and in this state, were encouraging women to join a bipartisan organization rather than a political party, because they thought, well, we don't really owe anything to those parties. They didn't really help us. And so there was a really big push uh, to join the League of Women Voters. Although I do have to say, Indiana women also, even those who were really good friends, 
um, split into the political parties, the major political parties, fairly quickly after they received the vote. You know, one thing that you did in your book was examine the role of African-American and Quaker women in the women's suffrages, suffrage organizations. T talk to me about their role in, in obtaining the vote for Hoosier women. Well, Quakers, of course, were the, the women who called the very first meeting in 1851 in Indiana. That was a Quaker-led uh, organization. Uh, I had a graduate student who did a wonderful master's thesis on talking about how um, uh, Quakers had learned organizational skills in the women's separate women's meetings during uh, the annual yearly meetings for the Quakers. So they knew how to run meetings. They knew how to get things going. And so they were really essential at getting this off to a firm foundation. Uh, I think they were also essential in getting African-Americans in Indiana involved in the movement. Um, because we can see in the 19th century, African-American women are in fact attending some of the state suffrage meetings. They appear in the newspapers as being present and being encouraged to participate. And since in Indiana, many of the antebellum so-called free black communities had settled near the Quakers, there was an, a relationship there that was already in play. Um, one of the things that was great about the 2020 centennial was the research that's been done across the nation on African-American suffrage organizations. And uh, they were found everywhere. Uh, Indiana had several suffrage organizations specifically for African-Americans. There were several in Indianapolis, at least two in Muncie, one in Marion. Uh, Evansville, I believe, had one because they had such an active turnout at the polls in 20 that I think there was an active suffrage organization as well. Uh, but they were um, essential as far as they often work through the churches, ministers in the, usually the AME churches were very interested in having suffrage be discussed through clubs at their churches. They open their churches to the groups to come in. Uh, they were uh, a huge part of the movement here uh, in Indiana. And uh, for example, I've seen the same thing happen in Ohio uh, and even in Tennessee, where in Tennessee, white women and black women uh, were voting prior to the passage of the 19th Amendment, and there are indications of cooperations between white women's group and African-American women's groups uh, to get certain legislation passed. So these are things that nobody would have thought about even, say, 10 years ago that this activity happened. Uh, but deep research and especially digitized newspapers, which tell you a lot, uh, and are easily searchable, which is great, has really opened the doors to the African-American suffrage movement. And by the way, African-American women did vote in Indiana in 1920 and throughout the 1920s, even though the Klan was so strong in the state, newspapers verify that they were sure to turn up at the polls. Wow. That just speaks to the strength of women, doesn't it? It really does. It yeah. really, And I'm so, I'm so happy that we've all uncovered that because think of how it was it was hard for any woman to meet mm -hmm. in a group and work for the vote. But for African-American women, they had that extra burden of race to consider. And so um, I'm so glad we can finally give them the recognition they deserve. 
you know, in preparing for the podcast, I was surprised to find that Susan B. Anthony, a famous 19th century suffragist, she spoke here in Bloomington. So I, I, I liked her summary of the suffrage movement uh, where she said, when women wore the bonnet and men wore hats, make the brain under the bonnet count as much as the brain under the hat. Tell me what you think of this comment. I mean, I, I think it's wonderful, but what do you think? I think it's wonderful. I really do. Uh, she was she knew a lot of people here in Indiana. It's amazing how connected she was to so many women in the state. But I think what she's referring to here is something that struck me uh, when I did the research, the book. And that was back in 1875, Zerelda Wallace, who is really involved with the Women's Christian Temperance Union, um, got 10,000 women to sign a petition uh, to get Indiana to enact, uh, if not prohibition, then stronger liquor legislation in the state. Now, Wallace did not believe that women should vote, but she did believe that women should be able to petition the legislature and get them to enact legislation. So she proudly took this peti petition to her state senator, and he told her that her petition might as well have been signed by 10,000 mice because he only listened to his constituents. And women, since they could not vote, were not his constituents. And as she left the meeting, she thanked him for converting her to suffrage, that she decided we mu women must have the vote. And I think that's what Anthony is getting at. Make the brains under the bonnet count as much as the brains under the hat. Mm -hmm. Like there's this recognition that petitioning isn't enough that really smart women can come up with really smart ideas that would be essential and would make so much change in the state if if they could vote instead of petition. Um, so I love that quote. I'm so glad you brought you brought that up. But there is that recognition that petitioning just isn't enough. Well, that, that raises one last question for me. And I, I just wonder how you think you know, modern women's movements compare to the earlier suffrage movements. Do you feel like they're just as strong and motivated as they were then? I would say, this is so horrible to say, but I would say maybe not. I am always struck by how how difficult it was for the suffragists prior to 1920 to meet. Uh, roads were terrible. Even after there were automobiles, roads were terrible in this state. Uh, trains were good. There were inner urbans. Uh, there was the telephone, but there wasn't the quick transportation that we have today. They didn't have social media. They had to send telegrams. Uh, they had to write letters across the state. All of that was so time consuming on top of all the usual household tasks that they did raising children. Uh, many were professionals. Huge numbers of lawyers and doctors and teachers were part of this early movement. And um, they worked constantly. I don't know where they got their stamina. And I'm not saying women today don't do that. But I think the women prior to getting the vote in 1920 had a huge, tremendous burden on them otherwise. And they did it anyway. Uh, I know I'm not that that strong. 
I don't think I could do what they did. So I, maybe I'm overplaying it, uh, how how important those those suffragists were, but I just admire them so much. It would take a lot for me to find today, and maybe that sounds terrible, maybe we should cut that, but it would take a lot for me today to find um, someone who I think is at that same level. Well, thank you, Dr. Morgan. And thank you for listening to our civic conversations. This is Becky Hill of the League of Women Voters, Bloomington, Monroe County. The League of Women Voters is a nonpartisan, grassroots, citizen-led organization that has fought since 1920 to improve our government and engage all citizens in the decisions that impact their lives. In January 2024, we are excited to welcome Dr. Michael Hicks on how school funding in Indiana improves economic development.